uh, and I bought a backpack literally a few days before my last exam. It was my first ever backpack and it kind of represented freedom to me. And I don't know what that meant at the time, but sort of on reflection now, having been writing about it, um, it represented freedom. Hello and welcome to the Helping Organisations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders and business owners with insights, discussions and robust strategies to help their companies thrive. We'll be interviewing business leaders, owners and experts in the field of business resilience. As a consultancy, we're here to help SMEs build resilient, high-performing teams and businesses quickly so they can innovate, deliver and thrive. If you would like to build a resilient team and business that creates, innovates and delivers, then do get in touch at julianrobertsconsulting.com. Uh, welcome to Helping Organisations Thrive. Uh, today I have Chris Howard on the show. Uh, good morning to you, Chris. Morning, Julian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you. Now, you call yourself an adventurer and I'd call yourself, call, I'll call you an adventurer and you've completed many adventures uh, to date that uh, you've rode uh, the Atlantic Ocean, you know, 3,000 miles uh, unsupported. Um, you've done other challenges. Another one I, I, I've got from, from your bio is that you've cycled nonstop Paris to Cambridge and did three stages of Tour de France over 12 hours on the official program spin bike, which is uh, quite, a, a, quite a challenge in itself. Um, <laughs> now, uh, it, it is. And at the end of, end of, of the first uh, COVID lockdown, comes two years ago, um, you were inspired to embark, embark on a, a UK sort of coastal trek after reading about the impact of lockdowns having on disadvantaged children. So you set out to walk the coast of Great Britain for children in need, uh, this 11,000-mile journey over 450 days, completely on your own, uh, completely unsupported. Uh, and so you, you come with a, a catalogue of adventures. And so I think for my first question really to you is, why do you do such big challenges and and when did that inspiration start uh, to go for these big challenges oh, that's a really big question <laughs> um i think interestingly i did uh, so it started when i was quite young um i grew up in a pretty rough area um didn't have a great childhood uh, i failed all of my gcse mock exams and I felt very quickly that I um, I needed to do something about that. So I learned a very valuable lesson, which was to ask for help. Um, and I did. And three specific teachers that I'm still in touch with some 25, 30 years later were really key and pivotal in me actually getting enough exams to get into the sixth form. And I, I managed to do that. But the six, the exams that I took finished much earlier than other people's exams. It's just the way they fell in, in those tiers. Uh, and I bought a backpack literally a few days before my last exam it was my first ever backpack and it kind of represented freedom to me and i don't know what that meant at the time but sort of on reflection now having been writing about it um it represented freedom and i i, I packed that bag with probably a lot more stuff than i ever needed to take with me but i and i booked a ticket to uh bangkok is this at, at the, the age of 16 or 18 i was 17 at the time wow okay and uh, and the day i the, the, i flew out uh, a couple of days after my 18th birthday 
and I none of my friends knew anything about Thailand or Southeast Asia, and none of my family did particularly either. Uh, this was back way before internet was really accessible. I mean, I didn't have a computer. You know, I didn't have a phone, let alone a smartphone. <laughs> so I was going into a world that was completely unknown with what was effectively a small map in a book, and um, and I and I met a lot of people backpacking and traveling. You know. Uh, in Bangkok, and I spent maybe three days in Bangkok when I got there. And what I realized is those guys were there, and as much as I made good friends, they were there for one reason, uh, and that was to have a good time, to probably stay in Bangkok, or to go to a beach and drink a lot of beer and have parties. That's all very appealing, especially to an eighteen-year-old lad. But <laughs> but actually, there was something in the back of my mind saying that this isn't actually what I want. What I want to do is immerse myself in the culture and, and see things from a kind of non-tourist perspective. I want to be a local effectively. So I just went off on my own and I decided to walk the whole of the Western side of the archipelago of Southeast Asia and, and go to as many and actually went to all of the islands on the West coast of Thailand. Um, how, far, how far is that? Well, funny enough, that's about 2,800 miles. So um, I, I made it all the way down to Malaysia. Um, and then so, so what so 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 the driver for the the challenge wasn't the challenge itself it was you wanted to explore uh, the culture and the country i guess that was the driver exactly i mean imagine i was an 18 year old boy that turned up in bangkok everything was a bombardment on my senses the smells were different the sights were different colors everything you know i got off wearing a light gray t-shirt from the airplane and as soon as i got out of the airport it was black with sweat because it was just a completely different environment and i was fascinated and um uh, yeah. Uh, again, prior to me going out and speaking to people back home, friends and stuff, they were all booking holidays to Spain and Greece and things like that to do exactly what these travellers that I'd met in Bangkok were doing. And I felt like that was a wasted opportunity. Uh, and by means, no means am I like the most purest driven person on the planet. That's not it. It's just that I grew up in a pub and I didn't want to do that kind of holiday. Um mm. It wasn't a holiday to me. This was something I'd had to work for, and it was something that I needed to use to reinvent myself, I suppose, or to define myself as a, as a human being. Wow. So that, that was the start of these sort of doing some big challenges. And then, I guess, if you go fast forward perhaps to, to your Atlantic row again, what, what got you into the place where you thought, do you know what? I'm going to sign up to row across the Atlantic because yeah. I can or would like to do that. There must have been something bigger than just exploring, because you wouldn't see any culture there. No, You wouldn't see anybody, to be honest. You just see sea everywhere, I'm sure. Uh, so what, what was behind that then? That was something different. Abs absolutely right. And, yeah, totally. The driving force was completely different and something that I'd learned about myself. You know, it was a good 10 years later or eight years later that I rode the Atlantic. So I, um, I'd done lots of other things, but I'd done everything right in terms of societal value and in terms of what I was being told I should do, you know, I'd managed to get into university. I got my degree. And then after my degree, I got a job and I got a car and I got a better job. And then what, you know, it, that whole ordinary life trajectory was set there. And then um, I had that epiphany moment, which sounds kind of corny talking about it that way, but I stood up in the office one day and I looked around at all the people exactly the same as me. There must've been 50 people in this open plan office. Some of them had been there 30 years already. And I thought, this is, this is not my life. This is not 
where I want to be or who I want to be. I'd already been halfway around the world doing other things and I'd already done a lot of endurance events and things. And I just felt like I shouldn't be doing this every day. I should have been doing that every day and doing this a little part in the day just to get to doing those other things, you know? <laughs> so, so I immediately went into my boss's office and said that I, I'm not happy. I'm going to go home and think about things over the weekend, but on Monday I'd, I'd like to have a proper chat. And I think that worried him straight away, but he, he was very supportive and he said, take the weekend, think about what you need to think about, come in, we'll have a talk. Let me know what you're thinking. I went home that night. It was a Friday and I spoke to my girlfriend at the time who I was living with and who I'd not long moved in with. And uh, I told her how I was feeling and uh, I felt bad because we'd just moved into a house together. We'd split all the bills and everything, you know, and I didn't want to tell her, I'm going to walk out of my job and leave it all on you. That's That wasn't what I wanted to do, but I wanted to be honest with her. And she said, well, look, you've done all these things in life and whenever you've been unhappy, you've changed it. So don't think that you can't now. Uh, and at the same time, my best friend had come up to stay with us because he two days before been two weeks before, sorry, been medically discharged from the RAF regiment. Um, we'd known each other for years. We'd become really good friends. We'd done a lot of cycling and running together and things like that. And I said, come up and stay with us. He'd been in a bit of a downward slump and, and didn't know what to do with himself. So I told him as well that night when he arrived and he said, yeah, well, maybe we should think about doing something then because I, I, I can't stay in this situation. He said, great. And the following day, we took my girlfriend and her younger sister, whose 18th birthday it was, uh, up up the up to Grantchester Meadows for a picnic. And um, I don't know if you know, we, we live in Cambridge, so we have punts on the river, and they've oh, never yeah, done yeah. that. So we took them on the punts, and we moored up against the banks of Grantchester, and we had this picnic. And it was great. Perfect, sunny, idyllic afternoon. And I, I turned to Tom, and I said, um, how do you fancy rowing the Atlantic? And he, he immediately, and I knew that he'd been a rower at university. I'd never rowed in my life. So, so wh where did that come from for you? That, I mean, that seems a random thought. It probably wasn't a random thought, but where did well, that Well, you know, he, he, the night before he'd said to me, oh, well, maybe we could do some more cycling in Europe or cycle over to France again or something like that. And I just sort of thought, well, I've done that. And I guess somewhere in the back of my mind that night when I was lying in bed, I was just thinking about, the darkness and lying there and what it would be like to, to be on an ocean or floating, you know? And I don't, I don't really feel like it was a, something that I wanted to do all my life. I didn't think it was something that mm. um, I'd ever thought about really. So I just, I just said it to him like that on, on the meadow and um, his immediate response was don't be stupid, you know? And uh, I thought that was it. It was shut down and it would be put out of my mind completely. But the thing is, <laughs> we had the first generation of iPhones at that point. And so we had the three GS, which meant we had access to internet in our hands, which we'd never had before. Mm. And after about 10 minutes of being sat in silence and me feeling pretty deflated, he turned to me and said, actually, do you know, it's, it's not impossible. And that, that was it. Like that was the spark. And then, and then, so two years later, having planned a campaign and trained and fundraised and got a boat, etc., we we left and then, and we completed yeah, we're in the Atlantic unsupported, which was, um, and it was amazing because a lot of our friends and families were quite negative about it. They didn't believe we would do it. They didn't think we could do it. And, and again, at the time, you know, this is 
over 10 years ago now. So it wasn't something that was particularly common. Ocean rowing has mm. grown massively yeah. in the last 10 years. But back then, very, very few people were doing it. And um, it, yeah, it made us feel like we were part of a very exclusive club, you know. Mm. So with, with all that, well, with the challenge in front of you, and obviously, you know, as I, as, as I know with sort of when I'm coaching you know, the GB row sort of teams, there's um, there's a lot before you get there. <laughs> so actually, even before you start, there's a huge thing. How did you deal with that negativity around you where people were like, just couldn't understand why you're doing it and kept saying you can't do this or why? How do you, because it's really hard, particularly a close family might be saying it and mm. you don't want to be rude with people, but how did you sort of process that and then keep going to, to pursue that? Yeah, it's really difficult. And you hit the nail on the head there with, um, you know, it's a massive build up to the event before the event itself. In some respects, the rowing itself is the easy part, but getting to the start line is so challenging, uh, not just because of funding, but yeah, because you get all this emotional barrage from people and almost like emotional blackmail. You shouldn't be doing this. You know, you can't do this. You're putting yourself at risk. Why would you do that to your friends and your family? It's not, you get all of these negative comments, but um, we were lucky that we, we had a, a good set of people around us training us. So we, we got in touch with a couple of ex-Marines uh, and an ex-Para uh, PT, which um, was great. He met with us every day for free. He gave us a nutrition plan. And he they would say to us, both the Marines and, and the um, Para, they would say to us, anything negative, use it as fuel, turn it around, make it into a positive for you that day. Even if it's just to get your next set done, even if it's just to get your net ERG session on. Um, and I remember the 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 Marines telling us that you have to think you, all your life as athletes, as people in sport and people that perform to a high level, you've been told to perform at your best when you feel your best. But you guys are going to need to perform at your best when you feel your worst. And so that stuck with me. And it wasn't mm. just about how bad we felt on the ocean. It was about how bad we were feeling when people gave us negativity. So Tom and I came up with a little mantra ourselves which was literally just get it done and that was what we would say to each other and that was what we would say to other people when we needed something and it was it became infectious you know and, and now i look back on it and think actually it's kind of dogmatic and kind of egoistic but the thing i learned from that whole experience about being positive and trying to push yourself and think positively in the face of other people's negativity is that you've got to sort of get away from self-limiting beliefs Mm. And, and you've got to believe in yourself and have the confidence to step outside that comfort zone. That's interesting, that that advice from the Marines, where, you know, it's easy to, I guess, go for things when you're feeling great uh, or people supporting you and cheering you on. It, you get the energy. I mean, I've done uh, not such big events like yourself, but um, and you, you've got the crowds behind your supporters and, and it, it feels good. Yeah. But when you're in the middle of the ocean... <laughs> <laughs> you've got none of that clearly none of that got no one cheering you on yeah <laughs> and when you are you know i've done iron man but that was and you have moments when it's really tough along the way uh but you get you know somebody comes alongside you you're doing well great you know all that encouragement the crowd and and it, it keeps you going but when you haven't got any of that nobody cheering you on yeah. it's really tough so as part from your mantra I'm sure there were some moments on that row, that's sort of 3,000 miles rowing, that you thought, why are we doing this? How are we going to get out of this? 
Mm. There's been some really difficult situations. Is there any sort of any high or oh, a highlight, a low light that, that you actually had to dig deep mentally? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think you know when I've spoken to people about our row, there and, and even people that have done their own row, they're quite shocked in terms of one how long it took and two the things that went wrong. So if you can imagine anything going wrong on a boat, it went wrong on our boat, and that wasn't down to lack of preparation. It was down to the fact that we had a pretty bad weather window that year, so we had three mid-Atlantic cyclones. We hit a, hit a container at night, so we sprung a leak in our hull, which meant our battery compartments flooded. So then we had no navigation systems, we had no lights, we had no, no power at all. We lost our water maker because the it was a catadin and the filter corroded. Um, so we had to strip it, put it back together. I think I did that about 10 times before I managed to get it working again. But that, that was 10 times over 15 days in 40-degree heat where we were only rationed one litre of water a day. And we were still rowing 12 hours a day. So, you know, we went through hallucinations, form of hysteria. We both had skin infections. We were both malnourished. Um, we planned for a 60 to 70 day journey. So we took 80 days worth of food. So we then had 25 days at the end where we were literally on bare minimum calories because we were trying to eke everything out. Um, we had to eat fish. We were nearly rescued by a grain ship from America, but we politely declined the offer to come aboard. Um, we wanted to get across. It was never really an option for us to be rescued or to quit. It was just we were going to get across by any means. Um, and so, so, in, of, so in those those difficult, I mean, you, you've named a catalogue of of um, incidents there, which are probably more than you say that most people have experienced on Atlantic Row nowadays. Um, how do you deal with that in that in that very moment, the mental side of it? Because it is it is a mental thing, isn't it? The physical piece is yes, it's <laughs> difficult when you're not you're feeling tired and all that, but it's the mental piece. How did you I mean, was it just your mantra or was it just was it something else? What did you learn in, on reflection? Do you know the mantra went out the window when we left port? Like <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. It became, it became very scary very quickly. And uh, but that was a good thing. And we used that fear to sort of keep us together and keep us going and um, we became very reliant on each other because a lot of people will tell you even if you do it in a crew or in a team rowing an ocean can get quite lonely because of the shift pattern you, you feel quite mm. isolated and especially at night you know um, and it's easy not to talk to each other so we put a process in place where we would stop every single day um, we would eat together so that was no rowing so we would spend half an hour we would eat dinner together we would talk and check in with each other Mm. breakfast one of us would be eating breakfast on deck while the other one was rowing so we were still talking to each other face to face and um, mm. just having that kind of connection able to check in together was it, it did a lot for morale um it helped us reason problems through and it helped us sort of scenario plan before problems mm. happened so we always thought you know there's potential that this could happen what do we do in the event that say the water maker broke so we we'd learned everything we could learn about that water maker before we even left. And okay, that's probably a bit obsessive, but in our particular case, it was the right thing to have done. Um, mm. So there's a, as an element of, if you, if you're prepared and you've got those, those kind of daily, uh, daily acts of self-discipline, I, I call them, um, which all, it comes down to routine as well. I mean, we, we felt very much like we fell in sync with each other because of a routine. And that routine mm. is probably what kept us, kept us alive. <laughs> interesting and it's um 
there's some real lessons there in in how people should operate in a high performance environment on oh, that that taking that time out yeah being on the task you know checking in with each other there's some real valuable things that obviously you learned as you got through on, on the row um, making sure each other are okay eating together there's something something good about eating together isn't there you chew you, you, it's not so intense uh, some i think that and in a, in a context whether it's in a business or any team that's really valuable isn't it that sort of community social aspect yeah well it reduces that kind of high level stress and situation right down to a sort of norm normality scale because we eat mm. together every day in ordinary life right and uh, i i came up with this thing um neither of us really knew what we wanted to be or who we were particularly when we left the radiation the whole reason we were there is because we were floundering in life previously okay we'd done other things but we were in a situation at that point where we both needed something more to focus on so the whole reason we were there was that and tom decided that he would become a teacher and that's what his passion was and that's what he wanted to do and he did subsequently become a teacher so he learned who he was he became self-aware uh, I decided that I was going to continue along the trajectory I was now on and, and keep adventuring. But I developed a system with him um, called HART, H-A-R-T, which is highly accelerated relationship testing. So you, and, and it applies in business as well, and it applies to workplaces. You know, so you're all in a, a, an unnormal or an abnormal situation with each other. Things are very highly stressed, and once you get to that point of high stress, you then whether it fails or not, you have to and analyze it and then you can test and improve um and, and that's kind of how we approached everything interesting and so i was going to ask was it the row that you started to really understand who you were and what you were about it so i think i had a the kind of basis of who i was but things had got in the way and clouded that over the years you know because you, you get involved in a in a job and you get a career and you get family or you get more heavily involved relationships and things like that and finances when you grow up become a, mm. a big thing and you know your moral obligations to the world are slightly different to they were when you're an 18 year old running around <laughs> in different countries but um yeah i definitely believe we both discovered who we are and who we were meant to be on that row i the last i think five or six minutes of our satellite phone package when we reached barbados I used to ring my now father-in-law and tell him I was going to marry his daughter um, in Barbados straight away, having never particularly wanted a family of my own and said, oh, oh, I know who I am and I know who I want to be. I want to be a dad. I want, I want a family. We now have three daughters. And then, <laughs> well, <you know. laughs> yeah. What a, what a, well, I, I presume he said yes and was okay with all that, I guess. <laughs> well, well, that was the thing. You see, I didn't ask him. I told him. And, yeah. and, that, and that was what I knew as well. So I didn't, didn't need to ask him. I, I just knew that I, would, I was going to marry him. <laughs> so who, who would you, how would you describe yourself as in who you are based on all you, you've learned over the last number of years? I don't know. It's really difficult because you said at the beginning, um, I described myself as an adventurer. The, the reality is I, I don't like that term and other people call me a British adventurer, but um, I think I'm a daddy first. Um, yeah. we, we had to use three words for our new crew for the GB row to describe ourselves. And I think that was probably a good way to do it. I, I, I couldn't think of anything for ages, but I think mine was something like, relentlessly attempting humility and that that is me fundamentally is i'm 
always trying to help other people first and I am calm and I try to see because I'm also very aware of how negative my thoughts can be and, and how quickly things can spiral down. So I, I try to always be quite positive and find the good in things. And I try to be quite curious about stuff um, rather than judgmental. Cause I find a lot of people, and especially in the past when I've told people I'm going to do this now, the first thing you get is judgment, not curiosity. Mm. And so I try to be the other way. But really you don't get curious. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you wouldn't get curiosity with what you're doing. Yeah, I, I often am met with judgment more than curiosity. <laughs> but, That's interesting. But I, so I prefer to be the opposite of that, basically, and be curious all the time. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I'm so That's why I'm, I'm interviewing today. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I'm nosy. <laughs> I'm interesting how people tick, how people do extreme things. That, and that's just not just in sport. I'm talking people have businesses and want to go from one million to hundred million. Yeah, you know, that's that's extreme as well. It's that extreme sense of pushing your boundaries um and you know getting way out of your comfort zone was where you know not only we grow and that sounds a bit cliche but it truly is mm-hmm. um so just sort of i guess fast forwarding actually before we fast forward you mentioned um when you got your your backpack when you were 17 18 when you got to bangkok and you said about that was like your freedom was freedom um has that been sort of fulfilled? Do you feel free in terms of how you, how you operate and what you do? Well, interestingly, um, so a reason I say about it being representing freedom is because I'm just writing, just writing my first book now. And there's a bit that refers to that. I describe the whole scene of that backpack being bought and me worried that I'm not going to be able to afford it. And that because someone like me and coming from where I came from, isn't ever going to have these adventures that it's unrealistic to try and attain them. But the reality is those were excuses I was making. And, and I've learned so much over the years. What I got to a point of realizing is after my trips alone, which I did, yeah, Southeast Asia and then the Himalayas, Northern India, um, Russia, a few others, what I realized is that actually, even though I didn't have a family of my own at that time and, and I wasn't really responsible for anyone else, I didn't have a responsibilities when I, they could be considered as quite selfish. And a lot of adventure is quite selfish. So I then decided that because of the freedom I'd had, I'd become quite fulfilled. And because of that and experiencing other cultures and the things that I'd gained from those cultures on a personal connection level, I decided that anything I did in the future had to be done with an emotional connection and for a good reason. And and that reason couldn't just be, well, I wanted to see a different country. So Mm -hmm. I then started doing a lot of things for charity and various organizations. That was then what gave me even more fulfillment. And and the great thing about fulfillment is that once you reach that and you've got that self-awareness level and you're fulfilled, you can start to give because your cup is full. All right. Mm. So once that cup is full, you can yeah. start to share it out and, and you can give back. And that is why I do things for charity now and, and conservation organizations, because what meaning and value does it have otherwise? Yeah, no. And, and it's great that you've, you've found that or got clarity of that, that purpose while you do these things, um, which goes to, you know, what was the, the driver for doing 11,000 miles? walk around great britain <laughs> yeah i say it just really quickly because it doesn't sound very big but it's massive it's huge yeah yeah well it's a bit of a paradox because 
well, you'll know from working with the GB rowing crews that um, it's actually only 2,000 miles to row around it. <laughs> but, but to walk it, it's much further. <laughs> Did you realise that? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I didn't, yeah, I realised the route that I was taking would be approximately 11,000. And part of that is because, yeah, the estuaries and the, and the inlets and stuff. The other part of that is I decided that I would walk inland and climb the three national summits at the same time on the way around. Um, so that added extra mileage, obviously. I then decided to walk from Norfolk, where was my finish point, all the way along the River Ouse, back into Cambridge City Centre, where the River Ouse becomes the River Cam, because I row on that river, it means a lot to me, and I thought it would be a nice way to round it off, and it was good for publicity and stuff. But the, I didn't realise until I got to the Isle of Skye that that was nearly 500 miles round on its own, and I just thought, <laughs> why am I doing it? <laughs> so what, what was the... The, the the I guess the driver that got you to put some boots on one day and literally pack back a pack bag pack a pack and then off you go. Mm. Well, it, again, it was um, it was this kind of moment of perfection in my kitchen, looking out the back door at my children running around in the sun and playing, and uh, my wife was making dough for bread at the same time. So it, it, I couldn't imagine a more perfect family scene and you know i could smell the dough being made it was a beautiful summer's day and it was just coming through that almost to the end of lockdown that first lockdown period and the whole way through that period and i was watching my children and, and doing the home learning with them and playing with them and i felt like we got closer as a family even though we've always been close i felt like we did so much more together mm. because we just had time and there. Uh, I remember looking at them and thinking how lucky they were by comparison to a lot of other children in the UK. And I wanted to do something to help children in the UK specifically, and especially because nobody was talking about children in the UK and how bad it was for them to be out of school. And, and let's mm. remember that for a lot of children, yeah, it was hard to be out of school. But for a lot of children, it was far worse being at home in abusive backgrounds, um, in deprived areas, etc. Mm. And some of these areas that people don't believe exist in the UK – they're there we just don't see them and there uh, so i wanted to do something to help specifically and i looked um looked at my wife as the sun was shining and the girls were playing and i said i think i could go for a bit of a walk around the coast and she said okay <laughs> which bit and i just said all of it but um it so it seems strange that in a moment of perfection i would i would have a desire to ruin it and uh, effectively but my wife's so supportive in everything I do, and she's always there, and you know, she's amazing, really. Um, and it was just that I, I, I looked up on the Children in Need website, and one of the taglines on, on their website, the first things I read was reaching children in every corner of the UK. And that kind of that just mm. had that amazing synergy with what I wanted to do. And so it was that. It just snowballed from that moment, really. We talked about it. Um, I wrote a website quickly. I got a just giving page sorted out. I spoke to the charity, and three weeks later, I left. Um, wow, that, that, that's that's pretty quick in terms of planning such a a big challenge, isn't it? Within three weeks, which is incredible. It just shows that when we get caught up with something, when we get, we get gri gripped by something, you're gripped by something, and it, almost that 
perfection was a, probably a contrast to what people were not having, which was weird, as you say. But in some ways, I can see why that was a sort of paradoxical, but actually highlighted probably the issue more to you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but when we but when we get gripped by something, we then nothing can stop us really. It makes us quite invincible. The fact within three weeks, because most people planning such a trip would, would I don't know, a couple of months, maybe in a year to sort of think this through. But there's something about that drive, isn't it, that comes from an emotional connection with something and a bigger, bigger thing than ourselves, isn't it? Absolutely. And over the years, having travelled with various size backpacks, I've whittled my kit down as much as I could to only needing essential bits and pieces and being fairly comfortable with that. And, you know, my wife made a really good point of, like, you could take a year to plan this, but from experience from you've had before, that gives people a bigger scope of time to be negative about it. You will convince yourself that you actually don't want to do it. And then she said, what will you regret? And one of the things I talk about with other companies and in talks that I give is this phrase, the excuses we make today become the regrets that we end at the end of our life. Mm. And that, and, and as soon as she said it, what will you regret about it if you don't do it? And I was like, well, I'll, that's it, isn't it? I will regret not doing it. Now I've had the idea, I have to do it. And so not taking that time and just having that three-week period of like, okay, I've spoken to the children, I've spoken to my wife, the extended family know this is what's happening, there's a press release, I'm going. Because it meant I had to get on with it and it meant that once I'd left, there was no turning back. I just had to, to move and adapt on the way and get going. And, and also that hopefully meant that momentum built steadily along the way rather mm. than me trying to drum up a load of support and it being a journey that wasn't sort of founded in a purity of me just going, I'll go for a walk, this is what's going to happen, hopefully I'll raise some money. Whereas if I drummed up all the press attention straight away and had everything ready and raised, raised loads of money and people were expecting me to come through their areas, it may have been a wholly different experience. And, I, mm. you know, I didn't want to ask anybody for help. That was one of my rules. I just... If it was offered, I might accept, but I didn't want to ask for help. And that was a way of me kind of gauging an element of human kindness, I guess, and whether it was still there, given that we were so socially disconnected. <laughs> and when you set out on that first day, was there any sense of, I say, fear or sense of, I'm not too sure if I'm going to kind of complete this? Or was, was there a, because it's quite a big task, isn't it? And, you know, even, yeah. even if you walk around to Land's End, which I don't know how many miles that would be, but that's, that's still quite a big challenge in itself. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> frustratingly, at the end of the first day, I almost had to, well, I mean, I cried myself to sleep in my tent because I, I thought I was going to have to stop the walk straight away. I injured my knee and um, it was an ex it, it was playing on an existing running injury that I thought was healed enough for me to walk. But of course, I left literally as soon as the first restrictions were lifted. And so we were pretty good about everything. We were allowed out, what, once a day for an hour a day's exercise or something. I'd gone from rowing four or five times a week, running four or five times a week, and being in the gym as well, to maybe walking for an hour a day with the kids. And so thinking my knee was fine, and then suddenly walking 28 miles with a backpack full of kit, Mm. I fell off. Um, I fell off a bit of hard ground in a field, and uh, I just jarred my leg, and it and it was so painful. And it lasted. I mean, it it did. It was really, really bad. I just was on a cocktail of ibuprofen and paracetamol for the next three or four weeks. Um, the very few 
family members that I did tell all said, go and see a doctor. We'll organize it in an area that you're getting to. Just go and see a GP. You, you've got to address this. And they, in hindsight, they're probably right. But I knew going to a doctor would mean they would just say, stop walking. And, and, and that wasn't an option. So, um, so I ended up stopping taking the painkillers because I knew how bad it would be for my kidneys if I didn't. Um, and for hydration purposes, I bought a strap to stabilize my knee during the day. And at night, that strap wasn't quite working. So I don't know if you, if you think about when you lie on your back, and I do lie on my back at night, and you put your feet out, they naturally do that or that. And just my feet doing that was putting enough pressure on my knee to cause me to be in agony and, and not getting any sleep. So I ended up strapping my leg to my backpack to stabilize it in the night. And so if anybody attacked me in the night or came along, I wouldn't have been able to run away because I had a bag strapped to me. <laughs> but, um, but so um, I did that and I switched my boots out for a minimum boot, which were lighter weight and they had a good degree of flexibility in the sole. Um, sure enough, within a few weeks, the pain had subsided and then a few weeks later, my knee was getting stronger. Then I got into some hilly areas and I knew this would be the test. And if I had to stop, I'd have to stop, but it was fine. I got to the South Downs way. I completed all of that without the strap. And then I would alternate the strap and not the strap every other day, just so that I was, you know, giving it a bit of a break here. So I effectively fixed my own knee. <laughs> it was interesting. You just said a minute ago that actually stopping wasn't an option. No. And that's, where's that come from? That sort of belligerent grit determination. That probably came from the Atlantic because you kind of stop, you're dead. You know, <laughs> there's no, once you get so far in, there's no point of rescue. Once you get so far in, you might as well keep going. There's no turning back. You know, it's, it's senseless. So, and, and it's that you've got to know if there is a point where you think, oh, actually, this is too dangerous to carry on. But I've never been in that situation. Uh, I've always pushed on and, and I've always pushed to a point where I've succeeded. So maybe that's luck. Maybe that's foolhardiness and just being bloody minded. I don't know. But I think if you set out to do something, then you need to do it. You, you don't, you don't stop. There when, when, do, when does it come, come to a point when you do have to stop? Because obviously when we are pushing the boundaries of ourselves or of humankind, um, there's an element of sometimes failure happens, doesn't it? Because you're there, you're there first, or you're doing something slightly differently. And as long as we reframe failure as feedback and learn from it, mm. so for you, when is that? What's that point when you think, where's the wisdom or moment that comes in? This I've got to stop here. Have you not reached that point yet? That... No, I mean, so I think that the one agreement that Tom and I had, <laughs> which was. Again, in, in hindsight, it's probably stupid. But we even said if one of us died on that boat, the other one would complete and bring the body back. That was how we viewed it. Wow. And that's kind of how I see everything now. The only time I would ever stop something is if I was so injured to the point where I lost too much blood or if I genuinely thought I wasn't physically going to survive, then I might have to. But it, but it would have to have happened. It wouldn't be a case of anticipating an accident. It, it would have had to happen. I've fallen off cliffs on the walk, for example. Um, I hit my head. There's blood all over a rock. 
I cut my hands. I, I slipped off a few other things. I fell into some water and had to swim around to a bay. All of those things are problems. But every problem has a solution if you just, again, like you say, reframe it and think about it calmly. If you panic, that's when things generally go wrong. I mean, I had a pretty hairy experience in Cape Wrath and I got hypothermia. But there was no point of rescue. There was a storm. I was two days walk from civilization in any direction. Um, I fell into a peat bog with a dead sheep and I was then trying to fight my way out of a, a muddy, squelchy peat bog with a dead sheep underneath me and trying to <laughs> clamber out uh, before i could get to anywhere remotely safe i had to jump into a river that was in full spate and swim across with my backpack and i don't know if you've ever seen or tried to swim with a backpack but you become like a weird sort of turtle and um <laughs> it's quite difficult because it fills with water and so do all your clothes and then you've got to haul yourself out the other side and, but but i knew and i had to make that decision based on the fact that I already had hypothermia setting in. So I knew I was cold. I knew I was wet. What difference would it have made if I didn't try to get across? I would have sat there and froze in the night. Whereas if I got across that river, there was potential that I would find shelter. And if I found shelter, I might be able to get my clothes off, get dry, get warm. And that is eventually what happened. And do you think that at that moment, was that, a pure survival instinct kicking in or was that something you when you face problems or challenges now based on your lessons you've learned in your life how you deal with things calmly because sometimes survival can be really helpful obviously clearly that's why, that's why we have it mm. um, but sometimes it can't it can be a hindrance and makes us not helpful i think there's an element of both survival and an element of kind of calm scenario planning the whole of that day i had been faced with pretty hairy situations big problems storm came in whiteout visibility was down to about 10 meters so i was taking a bearing every 20 30 steps if that just to and i was mm-hmm. relying on really basic navigation skills just to get to somewhere familiar or get to somewhere where it's safe um it was pretty rough going motivation is key um my motivation at that point became getting home to my children again at some point <laughs> which is an obvious way to keep me keep me going um i um i've always tried to develop good habits um in order to be prepared and so that whole day as soon as the first thing changed which was the weather i knew that conditions had changed such that i had to start thinking differently so the whole way through right up until that point where i jumped in the river i'd been scenario planning in my head and you know, I'm on my own. I've got nothing else to think about, right? So it's not like I can have a conversation with someone. So I'm scenario planning constantly. What if I break my ankle here? How would I get out? What do I do for extraction? How is this possible? What's that possible? Should I be near the cliff edges? Should I come inland a bit? Should I handrail this river? Where can I find food? What's my water source like? What's my situation with rations, etc., etc.? Do I have dry kit? How do I keep it dry? All of that stuff, knowing that when I got to a point where I could get changed again and get dry clothes on, that would help me get warm. Um, thinking about checking, yeah, my rations and my gas situation, all of that stuff you do as you go, because if you don't, it just escalates very quickly. And when it goes wrong, there's no coming back from it. And was that self-talk really helpful for you as an ongoing process, not only to help you in situations that are difficult, because often when we're on our own, sometimes the self-talk can really spiral us down, can't it? We can grab over something negative and suddenly we're off 
and make something such a big issue that really wasn't a big issue. Uh, how yeah. did you manage and cope with that? Because obviously you were on your own a lot. I'm sure you met people on the way, but most of the time you were on your own. Yeah. Um, it, it's always really hard. And I talk about this because I coach Rowan as well. And uh, I talk about this with guys in the boat and, and women that I coach. Self-talk even in a boat is really important or in a race, in any kind of sporting environment and probably even in business because it's a way of you processing not just the things that have happened but the things that are going to happen. You know, So I always think taking action is key and doing it sooner rather than later. In business especially, there are people that don't take action for a long time and suddenly you get this scope creep in a project. It might not just be scope creep, it might be financial creep, but suddenly company's bankrupt right mm. or you've got to lose staff because you haven't taken action when you needed to and it should have been done right at the beginning when you noticed there was a problem there's also an element of measuring risk and understanding what needs to be done and when and that feeds into taking action um, and i always like to look at the whole picture so it's all well and good <laughs> one of my favorite phrases is you can't eat an elephant whole right well, you can't eat an elephant in one bite, so you break it up into chunks. Those chunks become big roadblocks in a project or in a race or in a walk around Britain. But deal with the big, hard rocks first. Get them out of the way. And then everything else that's small, you can just tick off as little positives. So mm. so that's that's a way of, yeah, just getting through anything, I think. <laughs> uh, what, what were your, if you, when you reflect back, what were the big sort of, stones in the road as it were going around that sort of eleven thousand miles there must have been some you've just talked about obviously almost had hypothermia i'm sure was there other moments along the way where you thought this is really tough i'm not too sure i'm going to get through this or finish it yeah well some of the biggest blocks for me were actually nothing to do with the risk to health and and my own physical well-being it was more risk to my mental well-being risk to my relationships mm. with my family uh the the negativity that i had from friends and family up to that point as well and on the way around um the excuses the ordinary things in life that generally matter to us you know finance um bills home money children wife etc all of those things whilst they're important to us they they can end up becoming excuses for you not doing something and the reality is if i had the support of my wife and i had the support of my children nothing else counted and that was enough for me to keep going um but a lot of the time hearing the negative thoughts and, and like you said before they go around in your head and that self-talk can become very negative mm. i struggled in the beginning quite early on not just with my knee but i had this flooding memory having been on my own for quite a while and i got through norfolk into suffolk and i was in a forest and i, I had there's this one day i just had this something was niggling at me and I couldn't work it out and I stopped dead in the forest and I looked around and I was completely alone and there was a shaft of light coming through the trees and I could just hear these trees like creaking in the in the breeze that was how isolated and lonely I felt I could hear the creaking in the trees right <laughs> and I, I remember standing there thinking why is this familiar and why am I feeling terrible today what's going on in my head but I took that moment to stop and reassess and think about what was going on because just mm. I just mentally felt exhausted and drained. And uh, what I'd realised is there was a memory of my granddad 
that was just niggling away at me somewhere. And uh, and it was to do with the trees and the things I was seeing because my granddad and my, my nana granddad lived in Somerset in the middle of the countryside and I used to spend my summers with them. And um, my granddad got very, very sick and not long before I came home from the Atlantic. I then had a very limited amount of time to say my goodbyes to him. Uh, I don't know if I didn't deal with the grief properly at the time or something, but I was there being strong for other people and I was there with him right to the end. I was really close to my granddad. And um, and I just remember him teaching me about trees and about different fungus and things like that. And I was suddenly in this forest and I was immersed in it. And it was almost like he was there. And I'm not a spiritual person. It was almost like he was there beside me, talking to me about what I was walking through now. And uh, so it became a metaphysical journey from that point. I started Mm. thinking more outside the box and addressing my well-being and my mental health and thinking about the things in my past and in my history that were informing my today. And, Mm. um, And that became a fascination for me all the way through in the end. So I started... Uh, writing blogs about it which i'd never done before and i feel like that's quite a vulnerable thing is to write about how you're fi- how you feel write about mm. the things you're experiencing and um and then suddenly i was getting really good feedback and interesting comments about what i was writing and how it was helping other people that were either stuck at home or isolated mm. or, or whatever or in similar positions and I, then i felt like i got some value I was giving something back and mm. there was a meaning to what I was doing. I wasn't just out there selfishly <clears throat> walking around the country, you know? Um, so yeah, it was really, it completely switched from being this amazing endurance, physical challenge to actually being a mental battle all the way around. But mm. with that battle came a, a huge degree of almost enlightenment, I guess, because I learned a lot about myself again. Yeah, I think these when you get yourself in those places of isolation or even you might be not isolated physically, but isolated doing something on your own, that it's only down to you uh, that you start to, A, learn more about yourself, but obviously clearly had uh, some, and I was going to talk about that your well-being is obviously that's been quite a thing of the last couple of years. People's struggle with their, their own well-being, mental health. Yeah. But it sounds like you, you had those battles, but almost you sharing those obviously creating that vulnerability and uh, not only probably helped you, uh, but it sounds like it helps many other people as well uh, along the way. Yeah. Um, and I had, it wasn't an intentional, uh, it was a product that's come from the walk itself, which is, it's been a, a good thing and a benefit. I've got followers all over the world now that message me about their mental health and it's, it's lovely. You know, it's really, mm. it's quite amazing actually. Yeah, because we, we know that when we do something purposeful, it really does help us with our mental health, something that's bigger than ourselves, isn't it? It, it pushes us on. And you were obviously doing something, you know, for charity. You are doing it, you know, as a, obviously a big challenge in who you are, but it obviously came bigger than that. And you were obviously getting some reward back from the fact people were engaging with you on, on your journey of, of this sort of mental health as well. What, yeah. what surprised you along the way, as in, whether the people you met, the situations, was anything that, that sort of surprised you that you weren't quite expecting along the way? Yeah, I mean, there were quite quite a few things. Um, I suppose the biggest thing was the level of kindness I was shown and, and received in the end. I genuinely, I don't know if I'm naturally just a very cynical 
person <laughs> but um i uh i had so much kindness from people you know from people meeting me on beaches with bags of fruit and bottles of water and stuff like that and um Amazing. people leaving yeah people leaving freshly baked cookies and sandwiches outside my tent and um Oh really? Then, I mean, waking up to sort of food. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Um, not you know, not every day, but I mean, it happened a lot, and yeah, way more than I expected. Um, and even shops would, I would walk in, and shops would give me stuff for for free, or fill up my water for me, or um, a pub would offer to feed me. And I know that there was a benefit for them for that because they then got they looked good on social yeah. media or local news or whatever. And I had like a filmmaker come out and meet me to make a film about me because he was just so interested in my journey and uh, all sorts of amazing things. I had people tell me to come and stay in their caravan or on their driveway or that they had an Airbnb attached to their house or that when I got to Wales further around the country or whatever, they had some relatives there on the beach and perhaps I could stay with them. And it kind of like snowballed like that and became this amazing knock-on effect of people helping me up and down the coast really it was it was quite incredible yeah I, I i it was a massive shock to to receive that level of kindness from people in turn though i did have some negative experiences um but but the good good bits really outweighed weighed those negative so it restored your your faith in in human nature human again humans. again yeah i know it sounds a bit cheesy and stuff but it, it really did restore my faith in humanity a bit and, and in fact the book i'm writing about the walk of the coast is, is it's either subtitled or is going to be called a, a journey into human kindness that sounds a very apt uh, title and was, was it 450 days your the journey wasn't it yeah 450 consecutive marathons in the end my goodness and so if you were to do it again um what, what would you do differently or would you wouldn't you wouldn't change anything is anything you do differently i'd take a car <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i'd get around a lot quicker yes yeah no i think i i would do i would take my family um i would my girls would be capable of doing it perhaps not the same distance every day mm. but um and perhaps i would say we don't have to walk it all but i i genuinely believe there are some amazing places on our coastline and all everybody should experience them they're just you know all of it is so varied um mm. i would take my family and i think that would be a really good learning experience for them um yeah i, I my i definitely want to be on or near the sea for the rest of my life i think that's something that i've been drawn to and why i've done the challenges i have in, in the end mm. as well um but yeah I, I don't think i would do it too differently I, I would have set out in the same way with not much attention not shouting too much and then let it unfold naturally because i think if i'd done it another way i probably it probably wouldn't have become that metaphysical kind of introspective walk mm. that it became i would have ignored most of that just for the physical side um, which was far less important to me in the end than the mental health side mm. so i know you don't stop and so my question is, I know the answer, but because people to know what's next for you then, Chris, what's, what's, what's coming up in the, in the next few months? What's coming up? Well, a lot of uh, busy days and weekends at the moment. I am um, yet. Yeah, so I'm captaining the boat, uh, the challenger boat for the sea legs crew in this year's GB road challenge. So having walked around it and looking at the sea for the last 450 days, I'm now going to row around it. And as the, 
bit of a kick in the teeth. It will be that much quicker and it should only take between 30 and 40 days. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the real, the real part of that is um, I'm helping this crew achieve something that many of them probably thought that they wouldn't. Uh, and also on top of that, it's got an amazing conservation program, lots of really cool scientific data to be collected with. In parts, it's a world first as well. So that's really cool, working through Portsmouth University. Um, so we leave Tower Bridge on the 12th of June. And we will row up the Thames, turn right, and row until we get back to Tower Bridge, basically. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and what, and what, do you, what, what sort of lessons would you bring with you? What, what's, what, what would be your one thing if you were going to share with your team in terms of what you've learned what you've experienced obviously they're bringing their own experience as well but what, what would be your 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 learning or your wisdom i guess for for this trip well it's it's very difficult if you're a crew member you can, i think you can afford to bring all sorts of different things to the table i think as a captain you have to be a bit careful about what you're bringing i think good leadership skills are one thing um but what i like i i take a very kind of um not hands-off leadership style but i prefer to empower people than them tell them to do something and be directive mm -hmm. but um i hope in anything i do that i can bring a level of humility and positivity i think in that respect it should become everybody's own individual experience yes you're doing it as a crew and yes that's important mm -hmm. but your experience is going to be different to my experience and so is hers and so is his um, and that's okay in fact it's a good thing because it's going to be what, it's going to be something you take away from it. It's your learning point, not mine. Uh, and I don't want to heavily influence that just because I've done other things. You know? mm. And you're also writing a book. Uh, so how far are you, are you in with that? Uh, yeah, so I'm almost finished the first draft. It's seven chapters. I've got a foreword from a friend, uh, and I've got a list of acknowledgements at the back, which is cool. Um, I, I've never written a book, but I've journaled all of my events and challenges and travels so i've got stacks of books that i could turn into books hopefully one day uh, but this book is about the walk specifically um and involves a bit of my background as a younger person and um there's a lot about my family in there my motivation to do things um it's seven chapters because seven is my wife and her sister's lucky number and they've been pretty seminal in my life and it's also that all my daughters have seven letters in their first and second name so seven is a bit of a family number uh, mm. so there's seven chapters in the book well it'd be great when that comes out to get that promoted but um i just want to thank you for your time today chris i thoroughly enjoyed it i, I could carry on just talking and just being curious about all what you've done um there's so much more in there and so i do really thank you for your time yeah no thank you for having me if you like this episode then please do rate review and share with your friends and colleagues as a consultancy we help smes build resilient high performing teams and businesses quickly so they can innovate deliver and thrive if you'd like to build a resilient team and business that creates innovates and delivers then do get in touch at julianrobertsconsulting.com.